having that expectation or creating an awareness in all of us humans that mistakes happen all the time. They are everywhere. We are just really good at hiding them. And I think that's part of the problem is because we want for people not to make mistakes. Therefore, we expect some kind of perfection, which also we know doesn't exist. And if if a mistake does happen, then we make this big deal about how you need to go about it. And it makes us almost feel worse. It almost creates some kind of a paralysis in going and fixing it. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today is a former head of talent engagement at Google, where she spent 15 years as a leader. Since leaving Google, she's an executive coach and she specializes in psychological safety at work, something we've talked about recently on the podcast. Um, and and I, I quite like this from, from her website. She, she talks about creating a human space to empower people to make meaningful contributions in their organizations. And that idea of a human space, I think, is a lovely way of phrasing a lot of what we talk about uh, on, on this podcast and, and elsewhere. We've got a particular topic that I want to explore with my guest today, uh, and it's something that I talked about quite a lot in uh, in Just Ask. In Just Ask, I interviewed C.Y. Chan, who was one of the the, the, uh, co-leaders of Hong Kong Broadband Network, and C.Y. said to me, we don't perceive a leader who never makes a mistake as a good leader, because this is just telling us that you never try anything. And this topic of the importance of making mistakes and creating a culture where failure is okay, failure is something you learn from, and failure is something that allows an individual and an organization to de- to develop, um, is an argument that, that I make throughout the book. And my guest has, uh, I noticed when we were talking about uh, her coming on the podcast, she has a talk called Fail Fast, Learn Fast. And I said, that's the perfect theme for the podcast, because I really would like to dive more deeply into that topic. Uh, so I am joined by Daniela Landher, who's in Switzerland. Uh, Daniela, thank you for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Hi, Andy. It's great to be here with you. It's great to have you. And I think this is such uh, an important topic. As I said, it's something that I talk about in um, in Just Ask. And there was I, I thought we would start off with the idea of fail fests. Fail fest is something that I mentioned in, in, in the book. Uh, one of the people I interviewed, who's a partnership broker, Catherine Russ, told me that she'd come across some organizations in the humanitarian sectors that hold fail fests. Um, So this is an environment where everyone is encouraged to come to a joint meeting where they discuss their projects with a particular focus on where they've not worked out. And then they explore why things didn't work out, why certain initiatives didn't succeed, and what they can learn from that in an environment that focuses on learning um, rather than on blame. Now, the reason I start with that is uh, it was the first when when I interviewed Catherine for the book a few years ago, it was the first time I'd come across this concept of fail fests. I've, I've come across it since again. I have mentioned it to a number of people. 
and I get a very mixed reaction. Uh, some people love the idea as I do. Many find it quite negative and uh, and see it as quite destructive. So I thought, let's start there. You know, how widespread is that type of activity, and and, and how where have you seen it work well? That is a great question to start with, and uh, and certainly something that I see is different on paper than people live it. There is there are articles that you can find that will tell you talk about failure, celebrate failure, make it a thing. So companies, I think, in my observation, strive to create more spaces to celebrate the failures. Um, but I don't really see it happening as much. And and I you know I have uh, ideas on why and when I speak with leaders why this is the case. It also often is something that you want to do because you know it's probably the right thing to do, and then you delegate it. You ask, for example, HR, can you organize this? Or you ask some kind of a group to get together and organize these things. And and who goes there are people who already are courageous, people who already feel safe to do it. And they, you know, they'll get a benefit from it. But what you truly want is to ingrain that in your culture for everyone to feel safe to do it. And that really surfaces the differences in the culture and who feel psychologically safe to speak about it and those who don't and who are not going to take any personal risks that could be damaging for them in the longer term, for example, in their career. You, you talk about people turning up who have the courage uh, to, to talk about failure. Uh, and, and that begs the question. Um, yeah. It's funny asking the question because I think the answer is pretty obvious, but I think, but I'd like to ask it so that we can go, you know, deeper into the answer. And that is, is it a fear of failure that holds us back from doing this? And I think everyone knows the answer to that. Um, but, but why is this fear of um, failure holding us back? Where does it come from? And how do we, how do we get people over that line? How do we? How do we create that psychologically safe space so that they don't have to fear failure? The fear of failure that we experience at work is quite different than the one that we see in our personal relationship. So the level of courage that we have is also different. And in the workplace, there are basically three things that we are most afraid of. The first thing is the fear of criticism. We're afraid that if we say something or do something, that the majority around us, or especially, and we can talk about that maybe later, people with power, people who have more of a say, who can influence you know, our career, for example, that they will criticize us. So what we end up doing is we end up observing and learning what's expected of us. How can I deliver that? And I want to make sure that I don't fail. So we go into this kind of very, very small, if, you, if you're trying to imagine a circle, we're going from a large circle with lots of space for experimentation and trying things, we make that circle smaller and smaller so that we know I can't make a mistake. I'm going to be safe. And, um, and so I won't be criticized. The second one is the fear of uncertainty. And we saw that particularly with COVID spreading. There were so many leaders who didn't know where do we find evidence in history on how to behave? Do we, I remember March, 2020, when, um, to be honest, you know, I, I was at Google and I was one of the leaders at Google and we were wondering, is this just something in Asia and is it isolated or is it going to come to Europe? And the moment we started realizing it's coming to Europe, I was certainly one of the people who wondered, what's our CEO going to do? 
are we going to get like an email that says stay at home or are we going to get an email that says don't worry about it let's get back to the office and we we then see and we can look at what what happened but this uncertainty that started spreading it it was like a paralysis for many leaders so you can't postpone it though with something like covid because it started spreading so you needed to make a decision as a leader you couldn't go and and advise with I don't know, like HR and, you know, all kinds of experts in a certain field to know what to do. You just needed to make a call. And maybe that call is the right thing and maybe it's not. And so it forced leaders out of their comfort zone. And it was probably one of the first times that I have observed at such a great, like such a great, um, at such a great scale for leaders having to make a decision in a, in a field of uncertainty and having to stand up for that. And having to do that even now when they're going back and saying, you know, we're laying off people because of that. So it's really that accountability piece that we don't like because we like to kind of share accountability and double check and triple check with others. So if something goes wrong and if we fail, it's not just us who failed. We can say, well, but, you know, legal approved it and I double checked with this person. They said it was fine. So so that it's not all on us. And the third piece that we're afraid of is really this negative impact on our career. What's going to happen to me if I fail? What will that mean for my next step? What will it mean for my promotion? What will it mean for my reputation in the same company or even in a different company? If I get fired, what will people say about me? Will I get hired in a different place? So these fears are so strong and they are often things we don't talk about openly because it's kind of like a taboo thing. We might do that in our personal environment, but again, at work, we're really calculating who can we talk to, who will be truly by our side and feels more like a friend and who holds power over me and where do I need to be careful about expressing my own fears? As you suggested we might I do want to go back to this point about people with power because you've you've mentioned that twice in that response before we do uh, I'm really interested uh, about the middle part of your answer there and the experience you went through at Google with the uncertainty of the pandemic and and leaders as you say having to come out of their comfort zone and and not having uh, people to turn to I guess they couldn't even google it uh, and I'm sorry I know that's a terrible joke but I had to it, it's just been bursting within me ever since you started saying that uh, <laughs> um, but but this this uh, you almost talked about leaders facing uncertainty at that level and having to make a decision without the without the backup of history the backup of expertise and stand by their decision. You almost talked about that with relish. And and I want to dig into that uh, because I think that goes to your passion for why we need to be willing to fail fast and learn from it. So what if you were to look back at that period at Google in, let's say, 10 years, 20 years' time, what do you think you would be saying about what that experience delivered for those leaders and for the organization? My, my true learning, and that's a difference that I see across various companies, is there are leaders who will just own their decisions. And there are leaders who will hide behind the decisions they're making. 
And maybe this sounds like very simply put, and there's obviously a lot of gray in between that, but it makes a huge difference because having a leader, when you're, when you're leading an organization or a team, and as a leader, when you make a decision and you, you, you make, let's say you make a mistake, you, you end up saying at some point that was a bad decision and you share that with the team, there is so much respect from the team for you owning up to saying that, to owning it, to saying, look, the information I had led me to believe X. This is why I chose to do that. And that's why I did it. And was it the best thing? Probably not. Could we have done it better? Probably. So what do we learn from that? There's a professor at Stanford where I did um, a program who said, there is no right or wrong decision. You make a decision and then you make it right. And to me, that really stuck for so many years. And I feel that the making it right isn't twisting the world around your decision to make the world make your decision right. It's really making it right by owning it and taking that accountability, standing up for that. And we've seen that in politics across you know, some of the, the regions throughout COVID, where we've seen people stand up and say, ugh, maybe that wasn't a good decision to like close people up at home for, for, for Easter, I think it was, if I remember correctly, right? And so changing that and, and, and owning it, it just sends a message of mistakes happen. And, and then it's questionable if they even are mistakes or not, because we don't have the information. And that's the thing about uncertainty, is when we go to uncharted territory, we are experimenting. And that's beautiful, because when we're kids, we do that all the time. It's like, we expand that territory of reach. We we go from from just playing around the house, then we go to playing, uh, you know, down the street, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a forest, and it's new, and there's dangerous stuff around us, and we don't even know what could happen. But that experimenting teaches us so much, and as humans, we become so creative through that process, and it feeds our curiosity, and that learning that happens is a beautiful thing. And in organizations, when we when we stop people from doing that, when we create an environment where you can't experiment, because if you experiment, you will most likely fail. And that's a good thing. But if that's not ingrained in the culture, then people won't do it. They won't experiment. They'll play it safe. And when we play it safe, we will execute on what's asked of us, assuming that the leaders know best and anyone who you know sets the objectives for the company knows better. So we'll execute as well as we can. And we'll try to overachieve our targets just a little bit but we'll be smart. We'll calculate. Okay. What am I learning from the last cycle? I learned that if I give 85%, it's perceived as 105 and I'm going to get my bonus. So that's exactly what I'm going to do from cycle to cycle to cycle. So people are really smart in figuring out what is asked and needed of them versus can I take a risk and fail? And what's going to happen when I fail? And we will watch other people what happens in, in, in to my peers when they fail. And if failure for them means they won't get promoted or they will even get fired, then I'm not going to take any risks. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. I, I think it's such an important point um, that we need to 
have leaders who accept failure as part of the journey and and share that message with their teams because that then is going to create a more innovative environment which is you know that risk taking environment you you you're talking about there um you know, a lot of things are going through my head as you talk because in um I have a new talk a new keynote talk called vulnerable leadership and this talks very much to what I share in that that presentation and you know so many different connections between that talk and what you're saying are springing up one of them is that um you know we put our leaders want to be strong and they want to be seen to be strong and that can uh, traditionally mean that they're closed off you know my decision is the decision and, and this is the way things are and they 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 they're more intractable um uh, and one of the things that I'm, I always say, and I'm not alone in saying this, is that vulnerability is perceived as a weakness, but it's actually a strength. Uh, and if you can redefine vulnerability as a strength in your organization, starting with the leaders, um, you take the leader off the pedestal. I talk about leading from among, not from above. And then you, you turn around and say, okay, if that wasn't the right way, what is and work? together a lot more so i think there's there's so there's so much in that answer that resonates with me and even the politics because it just asked there's a chapter about you know do we expect uh, our politicians to not make mistakes exactly. um you know i talk about margaret thatcher saying you turn if you want to this lady's not for turning i think that did so much damage to politics in this country yeah. yes. and globally um so i think we're very much on the same hymn sheet there so so let's use that to talk about people with power and go back to that point um, because I think that perhaps expands that point away from, or not away from, but not just our fear of the people with power over us, which is where you introduce that topic, to how the people with power can take that fear away and using my phrase, lead from among, not from above. Um, so uh, where is that being done well? I think might be a, a good way to look at this. Where I've seen it being done well, certainly in pockets at, at my time at Google, where there is an environment that talks about it, an environment that says, what is it that we want? Let's not create an elephant in the room, but let's talk about what actually really helps us advance as an organization. And certainly, you know, I don't believe we can generalize it and say, at Google or at Microsoft or at whatever company, because it is so dependent on interpersonal risk taking and who, who again, will take the courage and, and, and create that environment. I do want to add something, though, that leaders can also feel very much like being in a sandwich. It's not like, you know, I'm thinking about leaders listening to this and, and then saying, well, that's easier said than done. Like, I am courageous, but I'm also in a sandwich and I'm also somewhere there's, again, power around me. And so this is that constant fear that we that we constantly kind of calculate in our head. What are the fears around us? And then we kind of weigh it. OK, at what cost does it come? What's going to happen? And then we create that environment. And whenever a company can set its culture to create a transparency around talking about that particular piece of culture, how do we talk about failure? How do we view failure? 
then it starts opening up the conversation. That's what I love about what you said about the fail fest. You, if it becomes a project, I don't think it's going to work. Then you'll have people in pockets who are going to do it. But if people in the company are not able to have that conversation across the board with everybody, and you see from, from all ranks, people joining in and participating, it will be a dangerous thing to do. Because if you participate in the fail fest, what will those, I'm going to say, in power who have power over me, because that's usually how we do our mini calculation in, in the head, often subconsciously, what will they think of me? How will they judge me? What effect is that going to have, again, on my career? So the environment is really transparent. It's an environment of having the difficult conversations, being able to talk about what is it that we truly need. And I read something recently about moving from the IQ into an LQ, the learning quotient. So how can we move away from trying to be the smartest in the room to how can we be most open to learning? And just shifting the mindset to thinking about learning, about making that part of the, the process and the culture will create that learner safety, creating that safety to fail, the safety to experiment and to be able to share with others what have we really learned along the, the process. And something that we used at Google that I love sharing here for anyone who will find it useful is Many companies will know this as kind of like, let's do brainstorming and have crazy ideas, right? And then you, you can imagine a group of people comes together and says, oh, our leader said we need to go brainstorm a new idea. They come together all excited, like the energy is high, excitement is high. They get ideas on a whiteboard, lots of great stuff. And then afterwards, nothing happens. Nothing. You, you, maybe you get to share it and people listen and then nothing happens. Same thing with surveys. You get a survey. How do you feel? How do you like your work? How do you like this? How do you like that? And you're like, okay, let me be open. I'm going to share it. And then nothing happens. So if there's no follow-up, if there's no action to when people open, they're not going to bother anymore. They're going to give up. And that's also where part of quiet quitting comes from. It's like, you just, you just give up. You're like, well, why should I bother? And we've seen companies go down from that. We've seen companies that 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 it took several risks in that space where employees just no longer reported an issue that just took a massive scale and almost destroyed the existence of the company and that environment is toxic because it spreads like a bushfire i i was i was going to uh, ask you from an individual perspective something but but what you've just said i think expands it to both both individual perspective and organizational and that is I, i've always felt that we shouldn't judge people by the mistakes they make but by their response to them mm. and of course what we can't advocate is that failure is okay full stop mm. if you don't learn from it if you don't adapt if you don't change your behaviors then constantly owning up to the same mistake you are going to put your job at risk. But if you learn from it and then adapt and people see that, then surely the people higher up are going to recognize that, see the improvement, see you've learned uh, and move forward. But what you've just pointed out is that's, that, that's important from an organizational perspective as well. And if you're not 
if you're not responding to the feedback that your team are giving and what's not working because there's a worry about blame culture or whatever the reason might be, um, you're going to run into issues there as well, aren't you? Absolutely. And, you know, it's like I'm thinking about our son. We have an eight-year-old son and he's learning how to play the piano and he's already afraid to make mistakes. And so I wonder, like, where's this coming from? But then we look at the school system and and it's written all over the place. It's everything you learn is like you will be graded on basically the mistakes you make rather than what is that experimentation, the learning. And, And so how do you prevent that? So even being a parent and looking at this, it's happening right in front of your eyes. And and you know you, you we're breeding another yet another generation that is afraid to fail and that will go into organizations where you you cannot go and fail and so it's even more important for for companies to to create cultures where failure is okay yeah. and when i say that i love what you added because yes there's differences in failure there's definitely not failing is good like if you don't learn from your mistakes like there's okay you you got to do something about it. It's like in sports too. If you want to become good at something, you're going to make a video of how you play tennis of how, or how you, whatever you do, and you're going to analyze it and learn, okay, if I hold my hand a little bit like this or a little bit more like that, or I have my footing more um, like this or like that, you will be able to learn and iterate. And this is where this iteration process comes from. And what I see many companies do is either avoid failure or if they've made the step away from that, then they'll say, okay, failure, yes, but at, like as little as possible. Um, but actually, it should be as early as possible. As early, like what is an MVP for? If you've got a product that you want to launch, it's because you believe in an idea. Well, good luck if you believe in the idea and you're just going to go and launch it. How about you You have a hypothesis and you go and test it? We see that in the agile space. We see that in many startups how they 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 go really smart about failing. And it's not about not failing. It's really about failing smart. So figuring out what is a hypothesis? How can we test that? How can we run experiments? How can we run several experiments? Because there's not one truth. You're going to find out things along the way that are so helpful in creating and structuring your product. And with that, you will have learned and and be able, you'll be able to focus better on what is truly needed and what's desired rather than I have an idea and I want to prove to the world that I you know have a good idea and I'm really smart and I'm just going to market it and promote it and it will work. So this is something that I believe in. And, and there's another thing that I want to share. We, we used to do at Google a lot and, and it's still being done by many teams. It's called a pre-mortem and there's actually an HBR uh, article on it, which is a beautiful, quick read, but it tells that story of often what we do is uh, when we work in teams, we work on a project and at the end of the project, we do a debrief. We sit down, we say, okay, what have we learned? Maybe we will even talk about failures there. Um, and, and what it teaches us is basically it's always too late, right? Things have already happened. And so this article talks about doing a kind of like a debrief before you do something before you execute and it's called pre-mortem. I don't know. We need to rename that. Like there's something morbid in that word that maybe, you know, well, I, 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 do, I, I do this for all of my presentations <laughs> and all of my contracts. I have a briefing meeting. 
Yeah. And, and I understand what we want to achieve, what we want the outcomes to be and how we're going to get there. Yeah. It's um, actually even taking it further than a briefing. Yeah, yeah. It is really to the extent where you assume this has gone horribly wrong. So you basically yeah. play out a scenario okay. where you're saying, okay, we're going to take an airplane. We're going to fly from Europe to Asia and something's going horribly wrong. What is going horribly wrong? Okay. What could happen? Pilot could have a heart attack. Um, and then you start listing all the things that could start happening. And with that, whenever you're on a project, you come up, people are so creative. They come up with things that are somehow surfacing from our subconscious to our conscious mind. And because it's a creative process, feels a bit like a brainstorm. People have more courage to speak about it because often it's crazy ideas. It's like, yeah. it doesn't need to be realistic. But what we surface through that process is a lot of hints about, oh, maybe we should check that. Maybe we should think about this. We haven't thought about that. And that process really helps to set one, the setting for talking about failure and things that can go wrong because you can connect to that later and say, oh, remember, we talked about it. And then it actually did happen or prevent it from happening, which is that kind of um, you know smart failing uh, approach is you surface things that you can actually make a change before you go live or before you launch the project before you launch the product etc it, it, it's um i think it takes us on to an important point and that is we've talked a lot about learning through failure and by the way when you first said lq my first response is we are going to run out of letters of the alphabet to put before Q. Um, but actually, I love the, the I love the philosophy behind that. Uh, I, I also think that's heard like, XQ. Have you heard? Of haven't heard of XQ. <laughs> we are experiential or experience. experiential. So that's another one that I. That's because that's because EQ is taken. They couldn't yes. use that. You see. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but I, I do love the philosophy. But, you know, and, and, and that's a core part of this conversation is the development, uh, organizational and self-development, as we've talked about, through our learning from our failures. But what you've just shared, the, 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 the pre-mortem, uh, I, I guess it's, an ex it, it's a creative expansion on the risk assessment, effectively, that many industries will have. Yes. Uh, but it goes a lot deeper. Um, you talked about preventing uh, issues, and I think it's important when we talk about failing fast, we talk about the impact of a culture where people can say something's gone wrong early. Uh, someone I've mentioned on other podcasts, he's been on a podcast, I've interviewed him a number of times, uh, Phil Jones, who's the chief executive of Brother UK. Phil just gives me so many pearls of wisdom every time we talk. He keeps getting reference. Um, one of my conversations with Phil, uh, he talked about um, someone making a mistake in the delivery of a part that was a key component of a multi-million dollar deal. And there were only two parts like this in the world, if I remember uh, accurately, accurately. I think I've shared this story in the podcast before. But because they had owned up early, the team at Brother were able to... Um, to to talk to the client to to ensure everyone knew what was going on and to work out a plan and adapt if he if he hadn't been able to own up to this huge mistake this huge problem they wouldn't have been able to do that so if we we have a culture where we open up to mistakes early we can respond more quickly um 
that has to be a key part of this message as well, doesn't it? Yes, and even even the step before that, having that expectation or creating an awareness in all of us humans that mistakes happen all the time. They are everywhere. We are just really good at hiding them. And I think that's part of the problem is because we want for people not to make mistakes. Therefore, we expect some kind of perfection, which also we know doesn't exist. And if if a mistake does happen, then we make this big deal about how you need to go about it. And it makes us almost feel worse. It almost creates some kind of a paralysis in going and fixing it. Right? If we didn't feel bad about the mistake, let's say there was some way that we could create a new connection between the neurons in our brain that leads us to believe that when we make a mistake, it's totally fine. Like it's totally fine. Then we would probably see it faster, report it faster, do something about it faster because it's like, it's not, it's, it's okay. It's just, it's okay. And that would help us be smarter in how we prepare for that. But mistakes will happen. And I think this is part of the big, I don't want to say shift in mindset, but it kind of leads me there. How can we humans just be more real about mistakes happening? And how can we learn earlier and sooner how we can be smart about thinking, how we do the things we do, just being thoughtful about we do them? Because in some areas, you don't want mistakes to happen. I don't want an airplane to come off the sky. Right. And there's a lot that we can do to prevent it. But if it does happen and we, you know, at some point it probably will happen again. How do we handle it? And how do we, if we see that something might be wrong, how do we create a a safe culture and, and, and space for the people who notice something is off to be able to say something? Because that's the part that hurts us most. It's not so much that something goes wrong, but that people could have said something, they could have done something and they were afraid to take action. It's like being a bystander and you know, there's something happening in front of you and it just isn't right. But you know, if you take action, something's bad, bad is going to happen to you. Yeah. And and it is a mindset. I think there's a lot more than that. And, and, you know, you've got me thinking about cultures where litigation is, is a key driver. People won't own up to mistakes because they're worried about litigation against them. Uh, things like that so a lot has to change to get there um but but baby steps i guess to to get to that point um well business you know it's it's also litigation is a business like let's not underestimate that Mm. it it brings money litigation brings money and if you can point fingers at someone i mean look at insurances it's 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 instilling fear in people that if you make a mistake um we can make money of that it works very well so Yeah, I think that's a fact to to look at as well. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, so it'll be interesting to look at um, where different cultures uh, respond differently to mistakes. So, let's start with with industry and sector. Your your background and many of your references are tech sector based. You're 15 years at, at Google. Uh, and, and you've referenced a couple of other uh, tech giants as well. 
I know that you now coach people from across different sectors, leaders from different sectors. Do you think that a, a more positive culture towards dealing with failure is more prevalent within the tech sector because there's a it, it's known for having a more modern way of thinking about business, a less traditional way of, of structuring business? Um, and, and if so, do you think it is starting to show up more in other sectors? You know, I'm starting to see a bit of a shift since COVID, to be honest. I think it's shaken up a bunch of industries and, and companies that perhaps over the last maybe, you know, decades have just had a traditional way of operating and, and didn't need reinventing as much because they had a product or a business model that just worked. And so they were comfortable with it. So they didn't need to, to change anything. Um, but with COVID, it's really shaken up the way that we work and also the way that employees show up at work and, and what we need as, as humans from each other in the workplace. And we, we, we talk more about humanizing a workplace and more human skills, uh, et cetera. So there's this observation I'm making, and I actually need to look if there's a broader observation, but I feel like companies in the tech sector, because they're newer, they were more used to that mindset and, and it was easier for them to apply it. And as they are growing, and certainly that was my observation at Google, as Google was growing, it was harder to say, this is the culture of Google, because you bring in leaders from different organizations and cultures yeah. and companies that bring in a certain way of doing things. So maybe, uh, you know, failing smart wasn't necessarily in their own uh, DNA. And what I'm seeing is other organizations and companies in different sectors needing to reinvent themselves, looking at, well, let's look at what works for others. So I'm seeing some more traditional companies or also in like the, the you know, biotech or, or medtech space that are looking at how did tech companies do things and what can we learn from them and shifting more, maybe more actively even than tech companies to making a change and really calling out and saying our theme is psychological safety because it's the basis for so many things, not just innovation. So how can we shift uh, our culture so that we can create that safety so that people feel safe to speak up and, and say things as early as possible? So yes, I would summarize it by saying I'm seeing it spread more into different sectors because there's almost a need to reinvent oneself and looking at what has worked for others. But it doesn't mean that across the tech space, it is still prevalent. It is definitely in pockets, I see it, but not across the board. And what about generationally or culturally? Uh, I mean, you were a, a global head of talent at Google. Uh, did you see a difference in the way that this would be embraced in Asia, for example, compared to the US, compared to the UK, um, and you know, with more millennials in it coming into leadership roles in the workspace now, Gen Z, Gen Z, Gen Z coming into the workplace, is there a difference in the way um, different generations are approaching this? Absolutely, and we had so many conversations with our teams, for example, from um, countries where. You, you, you almost need to operate in two different cultures. You have the 
geographical culture around you, let's say a country where you're not allowed to speak up, you are not allowed to uh, be of a different opinion, to have a different opinion than your manager. You don't contradict someone with higher seniority or more power. You obey, you execute. And then you enter literally a physical space called Google and you enter your meeting with your manager who sits on a different continent and says, give me feedback on our conversation and what can I learn? What can I do better? And you just go like, I'm not allowed. You know, you have something in your head telling you I'm not allowed to give critical feedback to someone with more power. And, and that creates a conflict in, in these people of you experience both worlds and you start seeing, you know, the pros and the cons of both things. And it creates a bit of this almost a, a, a paradox in, in, what what do you take to which world and how do you function as a human being because it almost makes two of you so that's definitely there in terms of geography and we see it in in the cultural um just the way that people are being brought up you can put someone who's very open-minded and loves learning and talking about failure to a culture of someone who's overly critical and says you need to go and find all the mistakes and you you probably need both of that to get a good mix. Sometimes for some jobs, it's really helpful to have people who are really good at finding mistakes. So it's also a bit of a balance. But the other point you touched on, which is the generational um, point about, like, for example, Gen Z, there is definitely more of an expectation from Gen Z what the env environment should be like and should look like. And people who have been working for companies for many years who just know this is just how you do it. And there's frustration. It creates that, that gap of, of uh, typically ending up in frustration where younger people say, oh, I can't make a change here because all I get is, well, this is how we've always done it and that's how we will always do it. And if, again, the culture creates that space for openness, there are older generations who've been able to sustain in a, in a certain environment for a long time can adapt to that if they're open to listening. Now, if you mix that with power, that's when it gets and can get quite toxic because if someone has power, they might choose not to change. They might choose to just say, look, this has worked for us for, for decades. So this is how we're going to do it. So take it or leave it. And if, if they have that strong attitude, they just might lose out on really strong talent that's coming in. And that might be the future leaders of their organization. And part of that is reinventing yourself and just rejuvenating the products and the company um, that you've built and that oftentimes the founders are very passionate about. And that's probably what I've got a lot of traditional business uh, sectors in my in my mind, uh, and I think that's what they, where they might struggle with this is that resistance from founders, um, uh, who uh, and resistance from tradition within within that organization or that sector and as well. You see the founders and, and apologies for interrupting you. In my experience, it's not it's not typically the founders. The founders tend to see, oh, something's happening. We need to move on. They kind of have more of that headspace for reflection. Uh, it's more the kind of the, the senior to middle management of understanding how things work, how the system works, how it works for them, and not wanting to, to kind of 
create any kind of risk, anything that could damage them in the longer term. So it's much harder to move that piece rather than I'm going to say like the executive level or the the even the founders or the the board. Well, this is a similar conversation I've had about uh, diversity and equality in the workplace as well. It is that middle management layer that really uh, often is the blocker uh, mm-hmm. of change because they have more, we go back to the whole thing about fear. They have yeah. more to fear, you know, for their careers and from the people above them as well. There's There's more risk aversion. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess for them. Well, well let's let's finish with with um, talking about you, you. You said about your son um, learning the piano and where that fear came from, because I think that's a really, really nice illustration of, of the challenge. Because what you just said in your last answer was, you'll have people from from certain cultures who have been brought up being told. Uh, you do what you're told, it's a hierarchical uh, structure and, and you don't question and you don't criticise. And then when a manager from a different culture says, criticise me, give me feedback, they can't do it. Um, you talked about your son um, going to school where everything is built on mistakes and, and criticising mistakes. And I've I've always said the reason people struggle walking into a room full of strangers and networking the the reason people struggle speaking in public stems from from school Uh, and I think you know obviously struggling with music learning music is the same for your son how do you address that as someone who teaches the importance of learning from failure and accepting it and yet you're battling with that ingrained culture from the school how do you address that with your son it's Harder, I would say, with a you know, with an eight-year-old, I would say, than it is with with adults. One of the ways that I do it is really teaching him the vocabulary about emotions. I think that's like my number one thing, so that I can give him tools to connect with what's going on. And that's often what we, what I find I need to do with adults much later is to help them connect to what's what's the conflict inside of you. And the conflict ends up being that fear of the impact on my career, the criticism, whatever, but not being able to say that. You know, if, if I speak to an executive, their first thing is going to be, if I say, do you create a, you know, a psychologically safe environment? They're like, yeah, my HR team is taking care of that. It's like, no, that is not what we're talking yeah. about. Like, what do you do? And so a lot of it is just connecting to what's going on inside of ourselves and what truly stands in the way. And that's one thing that I'm paying attention. And I, I don't know if that's, you know, we'll see how our son turns out. So you can ask me in 20 years or ask <laughs> him maybe better in 20 years. But that's where I'm paying a lot of attention is helping him to connect with what's going on and ha- trying to help him understand the, sy- the system around him of what is the impact of someone telling you what you need to learn and do versus you sitting down and just letting your fingers do something. So explore both and see how it feels. What does it do? What's the difference inside of you when you can just do something that doesn't sound like a song yet, but you're just having fun exploring it and, and you're experimenting with it. And, and yes, you are doing things that you know might not be considered right from the get-go, but you're exploring that creativity. And that's something that I feel a lot of adults lose over time is because society expects us to behave in a certain way. And we lose that creativity. We lose that, that, that desire and hunger for experimentation and kind of that freedom of just being 
And so hopefully we can do some good by by helping people just connect with that. Uh, that that goes back and reflects back to something you said earlier that really resonated with me. The same thing you said as kids, we 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 explore, we have that creativity, we have that freedom and the fun, and we lose it as adults. And and hopefully we can get it back and, and things are moving in the right direction. And I'm sure conversations like this will help that uh, to happen. So Daniela, thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Andy. I loved being here and uh, had a great time with you. Thank you. I, I think that that last comment from Daniela about, you know, the creativity and the fun, the exploring, reflecting what she said earlier in the conversation was a really nice note to leave it on and reflect what we should be trying to achieve. Take away the pressure of, uh, take away the fear of failure. Take away the, the, the worries about the repercussions within reason. You know, going back to my point about if you continue to not learn from failure, then, then there should be repercussions. Um, but let people learn, let people develop, and let organizations do so as well. Uh, and let all parties respond. And I think that makes a big difference for everyone and, uh, and it allows organizations and individuals to grow. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. I hope you did as well. Uh, as always, uh, please do comment on our social media posts. Share this episode if you, if you found it interesting. Share it with others, particularly those that aren't, are a bit worried about failing uh, or don't let their teams fail. Share this with them uh, and, and uh, help them move in the right direction. Leave a review on the podcast channel you use. It's always appreciated when people do that. And whatever you do, join us again for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.